Hi, this is Rachel and Rick We're here with Zach from Snap, and he's going to tell us a little bit about himself, and then he's going to answer some questions for us. Hey, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Rachel, for inviting me on. Uh, my name is Zach Heiner. I'm the executive director of Snap, the Survivor's Network of Those Abused by Priests. And despite our name, um, we do provide support services for survivors who are abused in any sort of religious and institutional situation. We were formed out of the Roman Catholic sex abuse crisis, but today we have support groups and services for folks who are abused in just about any situation. Okay. Um Let's tell us a little bit about SNAP. I mean, I guess we've answered a little bit of that, that but... Sure. It's a cool story. I, I, I like to talk about the history of SNAP because SNAP is a, is a true grassroots survivors network. Uh, it was founded in 1988. It started when our founder, a woman named Barbara Blaine, um, herself was a, a, a survivor of clergy sexual abuse by a priest in the Diocese of Toledo, Ohio. It, at the time, in 88, she was working in, um, in Chicago as a social worker, and she just was kind of grappling with her abuse, you know, the memories of it and the aftermath of it, and she wanted to find out if there were other folks out there dealing with the same. So she put an ad in a publication called the National Catholic Reporter just saying, hey, you know, were you sexually abused um, by a Catholic priest? I, I would like to talk to you. And she got a lot of context from that and a lot of, and a lot more and more and more and they were coming from all around the country so she you know started snap started as barbara just going to visit these individual survivors around the country and realizing that you know what they wanted to do together as survivors was be there for other folks in the same situation now i mean even today clergy sexual abuse is still a pretty taboo subject but especially then you know pre all of the major revelations about about csa and pretty much every religious institution in in the country uh, back then it was especially hard for folks to come forward so they wanted to set up these these bases of snap leaders and snap groups where survivors could come forward to someone who they knew would believe them and, and be there for them um and you know now uh you know, fast forward to, to 2022, uh, you know, the founders have all moved on. Um, Barbara Blaine sadly passed away a few years ago, but her vision lives on. Today, SNAP is active, not just in every state in the United States, but we have chapters abroad in Australia, in New Zealand, in Japan. Uh, we partner with organizations in Africa, South America, and we have leaders in Europe as well. So we, we really have continued on that same vision of providing a place where survivors can come forward and get help as well as have someone on their side who will advocate for them in the media and publicly as well. Mm. What are some challenges when facing you face and face when educating people about the clergy sexual abuse? Well, and, and I'm sure I don't have to tell you this to you, Rachel, or any of your any of your listeners here. But you know, we all know that sexual abuse is a taboo topic, right? People, you know, don't want to talk about this to begin with. You know, at best, you usually get a, oh, I'm I'm so sorry that happened with you. Now let's move on and talk about the weather, kind of thing. So already getting you know people to break down barriers and talk about the sad and common reality of sexual abuse across our country is already difficult. But then when you add something like faith to it, you know, then it becomes so much more personal. Uh, personal's rea people's reaction get more visceral to the problem. Um, and it becomes more about, you know, the abuse becomes almost secondary to the issue of, of the faith of the church and how all that intertwines. And I think survivors can sometimes, because of the fact that they're going up against these incredibly powerful institutions that, you know, 
people believe in and, and look to for guidance from birth in many cases, it, it can be extremely challenging. And so I think I, I want to give credit and I applaud any survivor of any kind that comes forward and is able to tell their story. And I think every survivor recognizes the reality uh, that there are a lot of difficulties uh, whenever you're going to, whenever you uh, disclose about your abuse. And then when you add in insular community factors like you often find in faith-based communities, it can become even harder. Um, what are some patterns have you noticed when spiritual abuse and sexual abuse are being tied together? You know, kind of going into what I was saying a minute ago, I think... You know, we all know sexual abuse is about is about power and control, right? And I think when you have that power and control can be even kind of ramped up a little bit when it is a faith leader who is the person who is abusing you in a sense that um, – you know, these are the people that, again, we're taught as children, we look to them for, for moral guidance and guidance uh, in, in how we should live our lives in the best possible way, you know, and that our, that our creator wanted us to live. And so when someone's exposure, often, you know, you think about, about children who are sexually abused at a young age, prepubescent, right? It's often their first exposure to sexuality at all. And so to have it come from a person who is your faith leader, um, who 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 wants these things to remain silent and hidden, and then um, it, it all being so taboo and, and horrible. I mean, I just think it leads to all of this being so covered up, and institutions have a vested interest in keeping these cases covered up because if they come forward, they lose that moral guidance. Right? Again, that's what people look to from churches. They look for guidance on these hard, difficult to answer questions about life and what we're doing and difficult moments in our life people often look to spiritual leadership for. And so if that kind of feeling where people look to to churches for guidance erodes because of this abuse of power, um, well, then, then they have nothing left. So, so churches, I think, across the board, this is really tied, you know, to the Roman Catholic Church, but that's mostly because they've gotten the most attention in the news. But I think every religious institution has sort of a vested interest in covering up cases of sexual abuse that happen within their ranks. Um, tell us a little bit, of, a little bit about your experience with SNAP. You know, uh, SNAP is uh, – I, I love SNAP because SNAP sort of helped me figure out what I want to do with my life. And that's a real selfish way of talking about this. But, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't really think I'd be working in child sexual abuse for a career. And then, you know, I, I had the chance to work with Barbara and David. I was an assistant for them about um, almost 12 years ago now. And I got to see kind of firsthand the resilience and strength of survivors and how um, – you know, when, when we protect children, when we make sure that, that kids are protected and raised and healthy in and, and loving communities and families, then we have a, a positive impact on things like you know, homelessness, poverty, uh, life expectancy, all of these things. And to me, you know, protecting children um, became so important to me because I saw the example of these people who weren't protected as children and had to deal with the effects of, of childhood trauma and and what they did and the the organization that they created to try to try to stop that from happening and so because of them I, I took an interest in child sexual abuse child abuse prevention as a career I worked with them at SNAP for a while before I moved and went to start working at Prevent Child Abuse America which is a wonderful organization that focuses on primary prevention education and legislation uh, wonderful organization but. Um, 
one thing that I didn't get at PCA that I that I get at SNAP, and that really sustains me because this is I, again, Rachel, you know this. This is difficult work. These are hard stories. Um, seeing the the strength and resilience of the survivors who who have put this issue on their back in order to protect, you know, the next generation, if you will. Um, is really, really something that kind of humbles me and is, is impressive. And I stand on the shoulders of survivors every day doing work to try to advance this cause. And so one thing that I always think of when I think of SNAP is it really demonstrates the true power of a network and how bringing people together helps not only the survivors who initially came together for help, but it helps educate communities. It helps educate those of us like me who are lucky enough to not have lived experience, right? It helps bring people into the cause, into the solution um, that we're trying to drive to prevent any other child or vulnerable adult from being sexually abused in the future. And that kind of is always what I think of when I think of SNAP. Okay. um, What are some of the best advice you could give to victims out there? I'll try to answer this in, in, in three ways. It sounds kind of kind of pithy, but I, I promise you I really mean this. And the first is to trust in and believe yourself. You know, we know one of the effects of, of, of sexual abuse, of childhood trauma, is, you know, feelings of self of self blame and doubt and guilt, like like it's your fault, you know, that this happened to you. And I think um you know, I, I think it's important that survivors learn to listen to themselves and to trust themselves and realize uh, you don't have to be as hard on yourself. This wasn't your fault. This was something that happened to you. And then second, I think that, you know, once you get to the point of trusting yourself that this wasn't your fault, I think, is is to tell someone, to talk to someone, talk to a, a friend, a family member, anybody you love or trust. Um, because one thing that one of the SNAP founders, David Clossy, always said, which I found just to be so true, was that, you know, uh, Talking is, is, is hard. Speaking is hard. But living in silence is a death sentence. And I, I think that's kind of true. You know, the more that people just keep in what happened to them to themselves, the harder it is. But, but there are folks out there who will share that burden with you. And um, I hope you will talk to them. And then, and then the next thing after that is, is you know, once you've, once you've found that, the courage to come forward, it's to recognize that a journey of healing is not a linear point A to point B. It's a, it's a circle and it's a roller coaster. There's going to be ups and downs along the way. You're going to move forward at tremendous speed and then you're going to backslide. You know, there'll be times where you're feeling just on top of the world and something might, might trigger you or activate a memory and it'll, it'll make you feel like your healing has, has knocked back. And, the survivors, some survivors I've worked with, you know, kind of take that when they recognize that things aren't going perfectly the way that they want them to. If they're still struggling with the memories and they're still struggling with trauma, you know, that's not on you. That's not a, a failure on you as a, as a survivor or a person or, or someone trying to heal. It's just the reality of, of dealing with trauma. And so I think, you know, ultimately this kind of boils down to be kind to yourself and trust yourself and then remember that there are folks out there who, who want to help and want to, want to support you along the way. What are some resources out there that many survivors find helpful? Sure. So I'll speak to the the resources that we've, you know, over the years spent the most energy on at SNAP because that's what people have come to us have been most helpful. But first is in terms of peer support. And at SNAP, we do that via via peer support uh, group meetings. So kind of similar to things like someone who've been to something like AA or NA might be familiar, but you leave your title, all of that at the door when you come together in this room. You're all just survivors and you're there just to share experiences uh, in, in a safe 
and non-judgmental community. Um, it's not a place where you're going to come and you're going to get told what to do. It's just a place where you can share uh, what you're going through with other people who, who will recognize it. We also, of course, do, though, provide linkages to services uh, that survivors might need, and I think that's something that, that all survivors, not just clergy abuse, but any kind of survivor will need is is someone who not is a therapist and, and likely an attorney if folks are, are looking for justice, but not just any therapist or attorney, but, but people who are trauma-informed in the reality of how sexual abuse or childhood trauma or, 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 or trauma in adulthood manifests. Because some folks, while they might be trying to do the right thing, they don't necessarily get it. Maybe they weren't trained, they, they weren't, you know, didn't go through trauma-informed training in school, whatever it may be. But there is a, you know, it, it is important to recognize that some, tra- some survivors are going to be a little bit more antsy about their case, right? Might be a little bit more communicative with the attorney. And, and so you have to have an attorney who recognizes that and isn't going to be annoyed by that or frustrated by it, but recognize that this is a trauma response. And so what we have done over the years is we've collected, we, we collect resources and referrals from survivors who say, hey, I had a really good experience with, you know, Dr. A in New York City. So that the next time a survivor comes to us, we can say, hey, we've never worked with Dr. A, but we know that survivors have said that they're a good person. But what I always tell as well, this kind of goes back to what I was saying about trust yourself, is that, you know, what it ultimately comes down to is your individual rapport, right? How you feel with the professional you're working with. And so it doesn't matter if 95 people have had a really great time with Dr. A. If you go in there and you're not that comfortable, hey, that makes total sense. We can help, you know, you should find someone else. And so it all really comes down to that, you know, personal kind of feeling, you know. And then, again, it kind of one last thing is it's similar to peer support, but, but a little bit on the outside, which is kind of like mentorship, right? Like someone else who's walked the walk, who's been there, that you can kind of have a one-on-one relationship with, to text, email with, time to time, to say, hey, on Facebook, whatever it might be. But just someone who you know you can turn to when things go bad. Those are the main kind of things that we do you know, from a survivor support perspective. But we also, of course, advocate for survivors. We advocate legislatively, um, primarily for things like statute of limitations reform, which we know is the number one barrier to survivors receiving justice. Um, We educate for things like mandatory reporting and the removal of clergy penitent privilege, which is basically an exception that allows clergy to, to not be considered mandated reporting. And then we advocate for survivors in the media. You know, when we're talking about most of our folks are, are it, it's, you know, forgive the pun, but it really is David and Goliath because it's an individual survivor going against a giant religious institution. It can often feel outnumbered. We help them get their stories and their side into the, into the media so that folks can see, you know, what an individual survivor goes through. Um, and, and that's been a major reason. Really, the media has been one of the major reasons that we've seen improvements in institutional response to child sexual abuse. Over Have you years. ever gone... Uh had to go against a police department just because of uh, them doing a poor job of reporting uh, the abuse. Yeah, that's a, that is a sad reality is that, you know, not all departments are created equal. And there I have, I have definitely had many a survivor who we've had to work with who they've said, Hey, I've reported, I reported to the abuse, my, the abuse of the police and they told me it couldn't happen. You know, we know that Father Father Mike wouldn't do that and ignored them. Um, heck, for those those of you who saw Spotlight, right? You saw the complicit nature of the Boston Police Department there in that case. So yeah, there, there's no doubt that that's a problem. One of the kind of, you know, it, it's certainly not a silver lining, but 
when you are going up against a government institution in that way, there are at least other avenues that you can get to around it. You know, you can we can go to district attorneys, we can go to inspector general um, uh, uh, departments within in state government, right, and have them do an investigation. The police, if they're not doing the right thing, sometimes you can talk to federal level agents if there has been something that you know makes it that level, such as crossing state lines. But the reality is, I, I recognize it that. Working within the justice system for survivors often isn't really uh, a pathway to justice and, and can be re-triggering and, and re-traumatizing in many ways. And so we do. And I think one thing, you know, we do encourage survivors to report always. We always encourage survivors to make sure you got someone you can trust with you. Make sure someone who can be there to hold your hand, you know, just stand behind you, help you project strength as you're going in. It's not easy. never is. Um, and, and you're right, Rachel, not all, not all police departments are created equal here. What does SNAP do to educate the communities? So that's really where media is our biggest partner. And, and you know, like I said, helping survivors get their story into the local paper, state paper, whatever it may be, um, not only helps you know, humanize the story of abuse that people are going through. But, but people people will read those stories, like we were talking about at the beginning here, right? Like people don't want to just raise their hand and start a conversation about child sexual abuse. But when you're reading, you know, news on the Internet or your Sunday morning paper, whatever it might be, you'll come across these stories, and, and people will engage with them that way. And I think that's really one of the most critical things that we can continue to do is to push those narrows. But we also put a ton of resources out there. You know, we, we, have, we have an annual conference every, every year. We have free quarterly mini conferences where we try to highlight survivor uh, stories, where we try to hi- highlight advocate, advocacy angles. We try to highlight healing modalities. Really try to put as much free content out there via social media and our website so that survivors can access it when they need family, friends, people are trying to learn about the situation can as well. Um, Because really it does come down to the fact that, uh, you know, abuse happens in silence, but but healing happens in community. And the more people that we educate about it and bring into that community, you know, the better chance we have of eradicating CSA. Fair enough. Um, How do you think the churches could do better at responding to sexual abuse? Uh, This to me is really easy. Mandate, mandate outside reporting, you know, uh, report to, to secular authorities. You know, if you look at all of these churches right now, uh, Pope Francis was just in the, in the, uh, the news over the weekend for, for acknowledging that his own new abuse laws, you know, hadn't made much of a difference. And the reality is, is because there was nothing new about, about the abuse laws that he put in. All they did was mandate further reporting, bishops reporting up to bishops. And, you know, in the Southern Baptist Convention, we saw the same thing in the report that came out in August, right? Everything was mandated to be reported internally. And like I said at the beginning of this, you know, religious institutions, they're always going to put their reputation first because their reputation is really what sustains them as an organization. And so I think any church that truly wants to make a difference, and to be clear, I'm talking with a broad brush, but there are parishes, there are individual-level dioceses, there are churches that have done a great job in, in individual-level reporting to you know their, their police, to district attorneys, and to the attorney general. But um, really it comes down to 
knowing that you can't fix all of these problems yourself. You can't fix all of these things internally, and things need to be done outside secularly. This goes for every institution. We're seeing the same kind of problem in universities, right, where multiple sexual assault scandals in several Big Ten universities at all did the same thing, all internally report. It all, there, there needs to be outside secular involvement. What do you do for self-care? Hmm. Not enough. How's that for an answer? Um, you know, I like to read. You know, I like to read. Uh, before I had my son, I like to play video games, but that one's out, so now I mostly just play with him on the floor instead. But, um, you know... Uh, Honestly, just being outside and being in nature uh, is a really kind of healing, centering thing for me. You know, it helps me um, relax after after a long day of work. And I know that the same is true of many uh, folks that I work with. You know, just finding some time to be outside in some green space, which, you know, I live in downtown Chicago. So I don't have a ton of green space, but we do have a pretty big lake, so I can at least go go sit by that. Um, but, you know, I think I think – Really, the best way of putting it is just trying to find time where I can sit and think to myself, you know, and just don't have to worry about obligations for the moment. Just be myself um, alone. That's that's the most important thing I do for self-care these days. Okay. And how has this impacted your faith? Um you know, negatively. Um, it's hard to it's hard to be in this work and have the same view of a religious institution, you know, that, than I did previously. At the same time, though, you know, faith is really deeply personal. And I think one thing that working at SNAP especially has showed me is how people are able to take their faith and extricate it from the institution at large. You know, I think I've, I've spoken to some survivors who have said that they, you know, they were abused, abused in a church and they will never be able to believe in God again. I've talked to some survivors who have, were abused in a church and they've said, you know, they know that their God wanted more for them than that. And, uh, you know, they weren't going to let the abuse take away that relationship. And there's some who have moved churches or found a new relationship with, with their creator and what it may be. For me personally, it's kind of eliminated religion from my life. But, um, you know, I think it really comes down to finding how these institutions fit into your life do they provide a benefit to you and if they do that is wonderful and if they don't then they don't and and find something else and move on um is there anything else you would like to add or anything else you'd like to say yeah i mean i just you know to anybody listening to this i know that it's not easy to come forward it really isn't but i hope that if you are listening to a podcast like rachel on recovery that that you're you're trying to do something for yourself. And so I hope that you'll you'll take this and, and find someone that you can talk to, a friend, a trusted family member. There's organizations like Rain that have great chat services. I, I mean, even that could be good for you. But find someone to speak to. Find someone to, to help ease your burdens with. You know, there are organizations out there, whether it's a group like SNAP or one of the myriad out there that are looking to help. There are organizations out there that want want to help you and want to make sure you're not going through this journey alone. And so I hope that, you know, this podcast and Rachel, thank you for doing this. I think it's important. Um, I, I hope that this encourages you to, to, you know, get out there, advocate for yourself and help, uh, you know, lay some of your burdens down a little bit. Okay. Um, all right. Thanks Zach for coming on the show and telling us a little bit about yourself and snap and, um, maybe we'll do a recap later. Um, all right guys. 
thanks for listening. This is Rachel in Recovery. Um, we're uh, tuning out, and um, you can always follow us on your favorite platform for podcasts or social media. And always, if you have any questions, reach out to rachelonrecovery.com. Thanks. Thanks.